exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. It is the, the first Tuesday of the month, and you know what that means. That means Olin Health Center comes in and hosts Impact's Exposure here tonight, uh, in which we talk about lots of topics, um, relationships, sexuality, and tonight we'll be focusing on the issue of pleasure. So can you guys go around and introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is Marie. I'm an Olin sexual health advocate. My name is Andrew Poole. I'm a health educator at Olin Health Center. My name's Colleen, and I'm a sexual advocate at Owen. And I'm Dr. D, and we're glad to be here with Emily tonight. We have a mission to try to embarrass Emily on the air, because she says she's never been embarrassed, so... No, uh, I've been embarrassed, but it takes okay. a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but actually, we're glad to be here tonight on a uh, night filled with information and stories on mm. sexuality. It's just, I mean, everywhere we look... And then the last couple of days has been the information on sexuality. Some of it tragic and some of it uh, research and some of it good for MSU. But Marie, uh, we're going to, you know, if, if people don't know it, uh, we're here to talk about everything sexuality. And sexuality is everything you are as a male or female. So it's not just about sex. Although we did find out there are 41 different sexual acts as, ta- as tallied by the recent survey out of Indiana, which we're going to talk about too. I think Emily was shocked by that. 41 different sexual acts. In so, Wait, what was that? In uh, let's see, was it, how long was that period of time? Was it within a month? <laughs> it was two hours. Two what? No, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, it was a, a oh. survey of six thousand people that's going to be released in the next uh, day or two. Can I just give that little stat for our listeners? It says the study that we'll be talking about later in the hour is uh, the study participants reported engaging in more than 40 combinations of acts during their most recent sexual encounters. Forty different. And it didn't include kissing. forty. Didn't include kissing. kissing. No, didn't, well, yeah, it wasn't. So, which gives new definition when you talk about having sex. You really have to kind of understand that people can mean anything of 41 different combinations, not including things that we normally think as, you know, sexual reaching out, such as kissing or any of those things. But if you want to call in at 432-3893, we have some complimentary prize packs tonight. What's in the prize pack tonight, Emily? Uh, Emily, I should say Marie. <laughs> That's all right. Emily might so, know. So, yeah, she might know. We have lots of flavored lube, condoms of all sorts, a sexual etiquette 101 book, and um, some Brugger bagel coupons, and yeah. We might throw in some of those complimentary massages that we got, too. Oh, that's right. From Douglas J. goodies in there. But, yeah. you, know, you know, we take for granted the things we put in there, but some of that's that true. stuff is in this survey, like condoms and stuff, and talking about condoms. And we also have some news from Trojan condoms that we're going to talk about later, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So we have, a, we have a fun-filled night, but we also have, you know, some serious topics. You know, one of those topics this week that's come to light is the, the bullying that's happened on Rutgers campus from, from a, a student who uh, was caught uh, by his roommates uh, uh, and streamed it over the, you know, over the net uh, about his choice of, uh, you know, having a sexual act with somebody. And, uh, and this unfortunately led to him committing suicide, which has brought to light the whole bullying controversy in, in the U.S. And I shouldn't say controversy, it's, it's a serious problem that we need to address. And, uh, you know, uh, so what do you guys think about this? I mean, has this made you think differently about uh, uh, this situation? I mean, I just think the power of the Internet is is really, really an interesting thing to think about. Um, and, and, I mean, to think about how much access you have on the Internet and mm-hmm. to be, you know, putting a video of two men having, you know, a sexual encounter on the Internet um, so many people can see that, and that can make a huge impact. Well, it does. You know, I mean, there's several issues here. There's uh, uh, issues of homophobia. There's issues of what's what's uh, you know what's private and right. and how we, we we think we can put anything out there for anyone to see that anyone does, and it's free game, and we have no responsibility because it's the internet. So I mean, there's so many different issues that that's brought to light. You know, and I listened to some folks talk this morning about you know the use of cell phones and twittering. And uh, one freshman student said that she spends seven hours a day uh, twittering and on Facebook, and she sends her whole life out to people. 
let alone, you know, uh, but what, what, what's that say about our, our society that we feel we can do that to anyone? Anything's fair exactly. game. We can and, put anything yeah. like that. And I'd like to also open this up to our listeners out there. You can call in at this conversation at any time. The phone number is 432-3893. Well, I think there's a difference between putting it out there yourselves and, and somebody somebody basically spying on you and putting right. it out without your permission or your knowledge um, and then finding out about it later. I mean, those are two completely separate completely. things, and they're both... They're both dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, the the question also came up in which would the same would the same would it have been as big of an issue if if it was a videotape between a male and a female? Right. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I was thinking about when we're chatting about this now. It's like, would that make a difference? And personally, I think it would make just the impact of it. And on that. But it's still privacy. It's still respect and all sorts like that too. Well, and if this young man too hadn't hadn't come out and it wasn't known right. that that he was you know homosexual and he wasn't ready to reveal that information yet, um, and then it was kind of forcibly revealed right, in exactly. such a blatant way, um, you know, it's it could be tough to deal with, and it obviously was for him. And it's not, I mean, there's several issues here we could talk about. You know, we talk about the bullying issue itself. I mean, there's a lot of bullying that happens across this nation, happening to young uh, gay men and women. Uh, that's one issue. The other issue is, what, what is it, who has the right to send out private information about somebody else over the Internet? I mean, that, that's a whole different thing. Now, if the scenario was a heterosexual couple, it could it still re- could have resulted in somebody saying, yes. oh, my God, someone saw this. Uh, I should, you know, decide to end my life because of this. So it's there's several issues going on here. But if our callers want to call in and respond to that, I mean, there is a... Uh, there is, MSU is responding to this too, and just recently MSU had an LBGT uh, symposium where they released the uh, results of a, a study that was done on campus, and, and MSU did fairly well. And then we have areas we need to improve on, and uh, I think there's areas all around campus where people don't necessarily feel safe at times, whether whether you're straight or whether you're, you know, TLBT or whatever. I think sometimes uh, we have a, a long way to go. But there is a vigil, uh, I believe, tomorrow night. Uh, October 6th from 8 to 9 p.m. at The Rock, and it's called Make It Better, a vigil to end homophobia and transphobia. Uh, so uh, that's going on tomorrow night, and uh, uh, if folks uh, want to take note of it, they can do that. Dr. D, can you talk a little bit more about that the study that came out? What did they find about, was it specifically views at MSU about LGBT communities? Yeah, it, was, it was an extensive study, and I think that we'd probably like to bring somebody on from uh, the LBGT Resource Center, because they, we have a great center here on campus, to talk about the climate survey they did. They, they not only surveyed students, but they surveyed faculty and staff, and do you feel safe? What's the climate like? Um, are supportive services helping students here? And they did a big release, and, and MSU actually looked pretty good on that, but what does that mean, pretty good? You know, yeah, we, right. we, we can always do better. It's kind of like uh, saying, you know, it's just uh, it's just good, uh, but I think we would have somebody on that can actually talk about that. Maybe next 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 show we can do that because I think one of the things we need to start doing, and that's what we learned from that uh, survey, is that we need to start tailor- tailoring some of our sexual health programs and our resources to different populations that do need that. You know, we kind of kind of a holistic approach, but we do need to tailor some of our programs, whether it's LBGT populations, minority populations, aging populations on campus. Uh, we think we need to do that. So, but uh, if you're interested, please call in. Uh, but our, our topic tonight is pleasure. But we got to get to the survey first, the big survey that's being released uh, from Indiana University, where we talked about the 41 different uh, sexual acts tallied. It was over six thousand. It's one of the biggest that's come out in the last 40 years, actually, since the Kinsey surveys and since Masson Johnson's. Probably the biggest one since 1994, where Indiana University uh, actually surveyed over 6,000 people, ranging in age from 14 to to 94. Is it? Uh, I believe 14 to 94, something like that. And there's all kinds of statistics that have come out from that. They're just kind of uh, amazing. In the story, the uh, it's just being released now, and so. Uh, but one of the things we saw in there was that they, when they talked to people about what type of sexual act you, you were involved in, they tallied over 40 to 41 different uh, sexual acts. I mean, does that surprise you? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's many different ways that you can explore yourself or your partner sexually. So I feel like 40 sounds like a lot, but I guess it actually isn't that 
outrageous to me. Well, so again, most people kind of pigeonhole. They either think of, you know, intercourse or, or masturbation or oral sex. But when you say 41 different ones, you go, okay, wait a minute. And then what there's this and there's this. And, but, I mean, what, what does that tell you about, uh, you know, you've been a sexual health advocate and you also work in HIV counseling, both of you. What's that tell you when you're talking to students about, uh, are you involved in sex? People are creative. <laughs> People are creative. I can't think of forty different. I know. I'm just. I'm. I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain. I and it doesn't include kissing. Yeah, yeah, not or, or kissing. some of the. I, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, I can think of maybe six or seven off the top of my head, but forty. <laughs> well, it's it's going to be. It's a huge survey, and I think it talks about the large diversity of what people consider sex in the U.S. today. You know, and it includes all kinds of stuff. I think one of the other stats from that that was pretty interesting is said that. 30% of women reported in the survey that they uh, experienced pain during intercourse with only 5% of men experiencing pain. Well, why do you think that would be? Women are more sensitive. <laughs> oh, Emily. Uh, you, you already played the women are more sensitive card. We're only 10 minutes into the show here. Uh, if you think women are more sensitive, please call in at 432-3893. The question of the day actually is this. Uh, we're talking about pleasure, so we want you to call in and tell us what is your most pleasurable act you've ever uh, been involved with, with another human being or with yourself? And human beings. Let's keep it at humans. Yeah, so yeah. the most pleasurable thing you've ever done sexually, and that's 432-3893. We want to hear, and then you'll get that prize pack from Owen Health Center. Yeah. And we're, we're, Lots we're of goodies. We're going to up the ante every, every couple minutes. We're yeah. going to throw something else in there complimentary until we get folks talking about what's their most pleasurable act. But why do you think that is, uh, that 30% of women reported uh, pain on intercourse? Any ideas? And do we need to go to the control booth and ask well, Rob? Can, I, I mean, it could just be a simple anatomical thing. Um, simple anatomical things. Thing, I, yeah. I, I think lubrication, ah, first of all, definitely. If you, if you read farther in the study, that's what they actually talk yeah. about, is that... Uh, most women report in this study that they don't receive adequate foreplay, in other words, in order to, to lubricate, and that the men that they're involved with in, in the intercourse don't spend enough time uh, with them, so they're adequately lubricated, so there is going to be some painful uh, intercourse. And so, uh, That's what up. I was beating around the bush towards. <laughs> <laughs> beating around the bush. The bush. Okay. Okay. Oh, jeez. But so, you know, the, the study hopefully will help to educate people. A couple of the other stats I found in here were, were quite, were quite uh, amazing. What, what percentage of men and women in their 50s you think are still sexually active? Did they find out? Yes, I know. Without, without looking at this, I don't know what I would say. I would say mm, 30 to 50. Well, you're really no, 30, say, 30 to 40, I should say. I'd say closer to 50%, probably. So you, you lowered your percentage. It's actually around 45% of men and women in their 50s uh, still report being sexually active. What do you think about in the 70s and 80s? That was men and women, you said? Yeah. 70s and 80s? Mm-hmm. Oh, like 20, less than 20. See, I would think higher. I've heard things that it's like 40, 50. Like well, actually, the new sexual revolution. The new sexual revolution with, with Viagra and all the other things that... 80 is the new 20? Can, yeah. keep, can keep you up forever, the right? 80 is the new 20. It's actually around between 25 and 30% of yeah. men and women in their 70s and 80s. But the study also found, which isn't, isn't surprising, that uh, uh, those older adults who are having sex are taking more risks and not using contraceptives and not using condoms. Uh, and mostly because they, they don't believe that they're going to going to get an STI, a sexually transmitted infection. I mean, they're not right. worried for the most part about no. pregnancy. pregnancy right. So they're not using condoms. And so we have a little bit of a uh, epidemic of STIs in the older adults. Wow, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Uh, well, it's interesting unless you're an older adult. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know this information, you know, because with the advent of Viagra and stuff, we have more folks doing that. Uh, one of the other things that this study found is that condoms don't decrease pleasure, no matter how much men... And some women talk about condoms don't decrease pleasure. In this, they said those people who were using condoms rated their pleasure uh, quotient as high as those who weren't. And I think that has a lot to say about the way condoms are made now, the new condoms out there, the thin condoms, the ones that are made out of polyurethane. But what's the new, the new formula? Is not poly, poly, polyethylene. 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 Yeah. You know, with the 
It's one of those polys, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a new plastic. That plastic. And what's, what's the difference with the polyethylene? Um, I'm not going to know the, the, the technical specification, but uh, apparently has, chemical it has better difference? heat transfer. Um, I, I think they're able to make it thinner and, and, and have it be as strong. Um, and it's cheaper? And it's cheaper. It's cheaper, yeah. Yep. It's actually what the, the only way they make female condoms now. The former, right. and it's it's quieter. The female condoms had a baggy... It's like, quieter? Would you want to explain that? Well, well, <laughs> female condoms weren't used a lot because when... when and they actually tried to use them a lot in, uh, in Africa to encourage... Um, women to have the ability to protect themselves um, from, from the spread of AIDS in Africa um, without, you know, if they couldn't target men, they could target women. Um, and then it was found that when women were using them, when they were having sex, it was making too much noise because the walls of their huts are so thin um, that other people could tell that they were having sex. Yeah. So the new condoms actually don't make this, this noise. It's so a little, little trivia there. <laughs> it's not the baggy sound anymore. Yeah. You know, I thought another interesting uh, part of the study said that 85% of men said their latest sexual partner had an orgasm, <laughs> while only 64% of the women reported having an orgasm. Their most recent <laughs> sexual so somebody's lying to somebody here, and somebody's faking something. I'm, uh, I'm curious, how many women do you think? I, is, there has to be a study out there that has that says how many women you know, have faked an orgasm, or how often do they? That's the closest I've seen you get red since I've been working <laughs> with you. You actually are a little bit red right now. Actually, we should have our callers call in. Have you ever faked an orgasm? If you don't want to talk about your your uh, greatest uh, sexual pleasure in... in uh, uh, well, they yeah. obviously didn't have their most their greatest sexual yeah. pleasure. They I, would, I, would, I would like to know, if you've, you know, how often people think that it happens. And the phone number, 432-3893. And, uh, and the reason, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, we could get into the reasons. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, I've seen studies before where, uh, you know, uh, men and women uh, in committed relationships over time, you know, the men will say, yeah, she has an orgasm all the time. And in secrecy, she'll say, ah, uh, not so. Mm-hmm. You know, eight times out of ten, I actually fake it just, you know, for his ego and for purposes of keeping harmony in the bedroom, which, you know, isn't really a good reason to do it. Uh, but... There's a lot of baking going on, and I think some men do, too. The men who are thought to having to have to perform all the time and don't want to perform or don't feel they can, they can fake it, too. A little harder sometimes to do that. Yeah, but I feel like that would be <laughs> kind of hard for a guy to fake that. <laughs> uh, there are a couple other things from this study I thought were pretty amazing is that they said that we need to pay more attention to adolescent sexuality. They said that adolescents were saying it's not just, you can't just pay attention to, you know, uh, uh, stopping us from having STIs or unwanted pregnancies, but really pay attention to all the things that, that we need to know about sexuality, about body image, <laughs> about relationships and all those things. And the study really said at the end, when it comes to adolescents, that most adolescents in the U.S. are very responsible. That more adolescents, 70 to 80% of adolescents report using a condom at the last intercourse than most 20, 30, and 40-year-olds. Uh, and so that we really do have a, a very responsible adolescent population who are choosing to be sexually active. We're not, we're not promoting it. We're not endorsing it. We're just saying that we actually do have a very responsible uh, group of adolescents in the U.S. But I, I'm curious if that also has to do with, with their, them not having as easy of access to birth control. Because another study um, that Marie, you sent out, mm-hmm. um, let me look at the study, it says almost all U.S. teens um, have had, it, this was a, a study about um, sex education, um, and just a little, a little blurb from this report, it says almost all U.S. teens have had formal sex education, but only two-thirds have been taught birth control methods, um, and that's according to a CDC report. So... Well, it makes you wonder why people are deciding to use condoms, you know, if, if they're primarily doing it just because of the birth control aspects or if they're even worried about STIs. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's just that people aren't even thinking about STIs or they're, right. you know, I think they're, more they're thinking, not on their mind. Yeah. More thinking about the big So yeah, I think you might be right. I think if, if um, you're an adolescent and you don't have access to birth control for whatever mm-hmm. reason, you don't feel comfortable asking your doctor because your parents will find out, that sort of thing then you know that condoms are another option. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think it has a lot to say about our public health campaigns and our private health campaigns talking about condoms and how effective they are. And I think that's one of the last things that I'll say about the study is that they said that the public health campaigns have been have been very, very uh, successful in getting people to use condoms and encourages them to believe in condoms because if you don't believe they work, then that's half the battle. But they've been very effective in that. So, uh, But what, it's interesting that we talk about the sex education in the U.S. because one of the other uh, stories that's going to come out tomorrow is that uh, MSU, Michigan State University, is going to be named as the second leading university in the nation for promoting sexual health uh, from a uh, huge Trojan condom study where they looked at all kinds of different factors and they rated uh, everything from uh, are you on the air, like impact, that's exposure, do you have access to classrooms, do you have access to contraceptives, uh, what's your website look like, does your health center, uh, how do people feel about the health center and stuff like that. And uh, uh, we're going to be named number two in the nation after only Columbia University tomorrow. And that's uh, we've done tremendous in the last, uh, I was talking with Emily before the show started, that we were, in 2007 we were 75th in the nation, and 2008 we were 36th, uh, last year we were 7th, and now we're number 2, so That's we're climbing insane. the scale, we're not going to stop till we're number 1, right? <laughs> dang we're not. Dang but, it. you know, uh, uh, and there's a lot of factors there, but one of the, the things they said to me today, uh, when they were interviewing me, they said, mm -hmm. uh, what well, do you think the education system in Michigan, the K through 12 system, is part of the you know good news for Michigan? Because there were a couple other schools in Michigan that were in the top 10, uh, with the University of Michigan and I believe uh, Western in that top 10. And so I said, well, not really. I think actually the reason why we're in the top 10 is because Michigan doesn't do a good job K through 12, and so the colleges it falls back on the colleges right. to do uh, the best they can to provide support as students try to develop their sexual identity and navigate this uh, these waters mm -hmm. uh, but that study that study is going to be released tomorrow uh, and uh, I think we have a long way to go yet uh, I think we still have programs that we need to tailor to certain populations but we've come a long way from 75th uh, to second so we should be proud of that yeah that's that's excellent thanks sex exposure yeah <laughs> well one of the factors they said was you know does your college campus uh, do uh, you know radio or columns and dealing with sexuality and we know impact has been doing this for like eight nine years now sex exposure so it's a good thing so uh, what do you guys think about that I just think it's exciting that um, we get to be a part of it you know we get definitely to work with the students I, we get to see firsthand um, kind of sometimes the difference we do make like I've had people tell me like thanks so much for doing this or this is so cool you guys are doing this for us so I guess it's just exciting to be a part of that well Colleen when you go into the residence halls and, and you do programs in sexuality I mean what do most people really want to know about um, I think they just want to know that what they're doing is okay like people don't want to listen but then you see them asking questions to kind of be like oh is what I'm doing is normal is there any, is this is this okay and kind of just approval when everything it is normal and it is okay to be doing what they're doing. It's just kind of like a reassurance that am I normal? Is this okay? Which most likely everyone is. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Marie, I mean, what's your what's been your experience uh, in the residence hall? Oh, I see we have a caller, so we probably should take a caller we first, right? We have a right? caller. Yay! You're on impact exposure. Hi. Uh, you guys are mentioning something about women having reported more pain during sex, and I wanted to mention a little something about that. Okay. Um, I've noticed that, I have to agree with Emily, I think women are more sensitive. And I think it might have something to do with, you know, menstrual cycles and things like that, because I've noticed that um, closer to menstrual cycles, I'm less prone to having pain when having sex as I am, you know, when I'm not close to my uh, menstrual cycles. You say you experience less pain closer to it? Yeah, when I'm closer to my menstrual cycle, I'm, I'm less prone to having pain than when I'm further away from my menstrual cycle. Because hmm. I've, I've heard the exact opposite than that. See, that's how it's, it's just been for me. I, I'm not sure what it is, but that's just been my experience, is that when I'm not right during my menstrual cycle, but, you know, like sometime before, you know, when women's, I don't know if it's all women, but at least for me it seems like I'm, more, I have a more of a sexual appetite during that time. 
Well, I think, I think you bring up a lot of good points. Uh, first of all, there's a huge diversity and sensitivity between Definitely. men and women, between women and women, men and men, all kinds of sensitivity. And what actually Emily was referring to was being sensitive emotionally, not necessarily sensitive physiologically, were you? I think physiologically, and, and now that when you, after you guys brought up the point of foreplay, I think that makes sense with the issue, the issue of, you know, lubrication. I don't, I mean, do guys necessarily need that during sex? Well, I, I, you know, let me uh, just refer to her first of all. I think the other point she brings up is there's a lot of things that could cause pain during intercourse, not just lack of lubrication. So I think there is a lot of changes in bodies that go on uh, during the menstrual cycle. During, I mean, hormonal, hormonal fluctuations can cause all kinds of sensitivities in women. And I think men tend to. Men, men are sometimes very sensitive, other times not. But so I think there's a lot of things that could cause pain. But going back to your question about... Do men really need foreplay? Uh, well, uh, I can only speak for men of my age. No. I can only say that from the research, a lot of men are visual. So sometimes if, if they, they work the foreplay into the visual you know, uh, uh, repertoire of doing things, uh, it becomes very important. A lot of men are very sensitive to their partners, whether they're male or female, and want to provide as much foreplay as possible. But I think sometimes it's a lack of communication. People don't tell each other what they need because it's like, you should know, or you should uh, understand this, and I shouldn't have to tell you that I'd rather have 30 minutes of foreplay than two minutes and, you know, it's over with. So I think it's a lot, a lot of communication, too. Well, I think it's just differences in people too. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think some some men maybe probably do need lubrication, and, and others might not. Just just as it as it would be different between different females, and uh, like our caller, um, there could be different points in the menstrual cycle where you have different sensitivities, and it could be completely different from the next person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think your point's well taken. So hang on, and you'll get a prize pack. Yep, stay in the line and learn how you can get your prize pack. All right, thank cool. you. Thank you. I mean, she brings some some good points about mm -hmm. uh, uh, people are different. There's a long variety is so uh, from one extreme to the other that you can you can never tell sometimes. But uh, uh, we're interested in the study tomorrow, and so uh, keep your eyes open for that. And uh, uh, where will it be released at? Is it going to be in the state news or? I think the state news is doing a story tonight, but oh, the sweet. actual. Uh, to 2010 uh, rankings will come out tomorrow from okay. Trojan. You know, and, and usually you hear Trojan, and they've got something behind us, they want to sell condoms, but the fact is uh, they have like 13 different quali qualifying uh, uh, metrics they use to determine the, the score for each university. So hmm. I think MSU uh, is trying to do what they can in this area. And it's really kind of a, a, uh, a campus-wide effort, you know, because RHA, who works with us, uh, Residents Hall Association, they help fund the condom connections which the mentors get. And so a lot of this has to do with uh, the students on campus, not just the health center, it's the, you know, the uh, counseling center which has a great sexual assault program mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to educate people. Um, that's part of one of the metrics they use too is whether you have a sexual assault program. So all kinds of things going on. So you want to you talk a few minutes about the study that you sent in? Oh, sure. So the study that are, it's kind of just a, um, talking about the ending of abstinence-only education, um, and the story is focused around Miami, um, and just focusing more about life goals in general, and looking at sexual education around that as well, like, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? Does this include a child? How do you take steps to address that or not, or however to make it work? Um, and... So this this is a part of a grant, and it's uh, about $300 million for a grant that, it, that spans over five years. And it's not only about sex education, but, um, you know, it distributes condoms, um, birth control, mm -hmm. but it's also aiming to boost um, academic life as well as getting involved in yeah. extracurricular activities. And, and even there's a portion um, to improve their parents' job status. They're actually oh. providing... Um, you know, workshops like resumes for for um, students' parents, parents, which I thought was really, really interesting to have encompassing that program. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting addition to a sexual health education program. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think another thing that comes from your education is definitely what your parents are able to do and what their socioeconomic status kind of helps with your education level as well. I think those are definitely... So I can kind of see, but it's a not as strong connection as I would have thought. Well, there's, there's been several studies done over the years asking young people uh, from the ages of 5 until they're 18, who would they rather get their sexual health information from, sex yeah. education from? And almost categorically across the, all those studies, they say parents. So the more we can support parents to do that type of job, and but you know, a lot of parents are afraid to do that oh, for a lot of reasons. One, it gives them permission. Two, they think they have the wrong information. Three, many of them have scarred paths when it comes to their 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 uh, uh, sexual history. So they they're afraid to talk to you know the young people. But when you really get young people in a safe environment and you ask them. Who is it that you want to talk to about that? They'll usually say the parents, right. uh, but most of them get turned off really early. So I think anything that we can do to support parents to be the primary uh, source of sex education is something we should do. So well, I, I like what I read about these programs because we always talk about sexuality, um, you know, not being just about sex, sex and just about relationships. It's about a person as a whole. Right. And I think the goal of these programs, it sounds like, is to kind of address the whole person because I mean it talks about in here um, they get free medical and dental care but they're required to get summer jobs open a bank account um, save 10% of their wages learn how to balance a checkbook I mean they're covering the whole gamut of, of, of what it's life what it's like to to grow up um, and I see that they're um, they're actually doing this program in Flint Michigan Toledo Ohio with young adults or young young adolescents so um, it's interesting to see uh, that happening so close to home mm -hmm. So another, I mean, if you connect um, the children with the parents, even just with, like, monetary, financial side of things, I mean, and with this sort of program, and they know, the parents know that sex education is being talked about, it maybe just makes the, makes communication maybe a little more freer and easier to talk about, at least that you know that your child is... Um, receiving sex education in that sort of program. Well, I think I think that's sad because I can totally understand how uncomfortable that can be for a parent. But at the same time, if you're not going to talk about that, I, that can bring up a lot of problems. If you're gonna, if you have to hide sexuality and the issues that sex bring from your own parents as an adolescent, you're gonna hide it, and it's going to be way worse. So I'm, I'm, I want to encourage some mothers out there that are tuning in right now that may have an opinion about why or why not they talk to their kids about sex. And that phone number is 432-3893. And whether you're a mother or not, if you call in, we'll give you a prize back that's filled with all kinds of things that you can give to your adolescents mm -hmm. and to your, your kids to talk about. But, you know, that, that's a loaded question, and I do want to get back to pleasure here in, in a little bit. But, you know... Uh, when do you, we, we cover this in the classes, whether we teach at MSU or LCC, when do you start talking to your kids about sex or sexuality? And it's interesting, because we just went through this two weeks ago in the class at LCC, and most of them said, well, you know, the parents there said, well, when they're 12 or 13, and most parents will say, when they ask, and my question always back is, is what if they never ask? Do you have a responsibility to talk to them about something so important in your life? I mean, we always equate sex with sexuality, and it's, sex is only a small part, and I've right. said this too many times, but why wouldn't you give information to your kids about their body image and about relationships and, and about uh, the anatomical stuff? I mean, there are people who never talk to their young daughters about menstruation before it happens. It still happens. I know a story that just happened two weeks ago where the mother was telling me her daughter freaked out because she had you know, her first period and she said, I never talked to her about it. And, or, or for a young man, and some of you are going to laugh when I say this, who's had their first wet dream, but you never talk to them about these things. How can you not do that with your kids? I can, you know, you talk to them about staying safe, but you don't talk to them about uh, developing good behaviors when it comes to sexual health. And as we all know, sexual health is more than just being free of STIs and, and unwanted pregnancies. But why wouldn't you want to talk to them about that? Because uh, it's not moral or it's uh, against your uh, philosophy. Or, I don't know. So I, I ask the mothers to call in. <laughs> if they have an opinion on this. Uh, but let's get back to what Marie wanted to talk to about tonight, which is pleasure, which 
in my book, the only other reason for sex other than pleasure is procreation. So mm -hmm. if you're not doing it for pleasure or, one, or procreation, then you really need to stop and think, right? Right, definitely. So, so what, what did we want to talk about? I mean, is this a taboo subject, Emily? I mean, talk about this. Let's, let's ask parents to call in and tell us, would they talk to their kids about pleasure? That's a that's a very different topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it though? I mean, come on. We talk. Kids teach their. Uh, I mean, parents teach their kids how to ride a bike, and why do they do that? Because they you know can enjoy something. Have ple I'm, I'm not endorsing that parents talk to, to kids about having sex so they can have pleasure. But I'm saying why wouldn't you use that topic if you're talking about sex? I mean, did any of you? Did any of your parents talk to you about it? Well, I mean, I think if you if you frame it in the way you just mentioned, um, if you're not having sex for for pleasure or procreation, I mean, I think if you're coming at it from that angle as a parent, um, if you're not having it for one of those two reasons, then you need to really question why you're doing it. See, when I was growing up, for as long as I remember, my mom, like as long as I remember, she we always talked about sex and pleasure and, and more the emotional side of sex. So when we chose to have sex. It was a, a decision that we wanted to do for ourselves, and it was always like, you don't need to do this for the other person. It should be when you're ready. And um, I think that was it, it. Was the easiest thing when I decided to have sex because I, I knew where what I wanted to do with it and where I wanted to go with it. Was she comfortable talking to you about the you know? Because uh, do you think that'd be a natural question if if you're a parent and you're talking to a kid about sex and they say, "Mom, why do you have sex?" And so so how would you answer that? Uh, Procreation. We've been trying for twelve years, and we can't. We can't have one. Um, how would you answer that? I mean, how did your mom frame that about pleasure? And it, it was never. It never was like oh, procreation. It was kind of like it's a, supposed to be a special thing with someone you're doing when you want to do it. It should never mm -hmm. be forced. It should just be a special, intimate thing. And that was more the thing. It wasn't like abstinence or don't do it. It was more focused on do it when you want to with someone you want to be doing it with. But do you think do you think it's uh, the parents talk to their kids about uh, this is how to have pleasure and this is what you should get out of it? Because I still talk to to men and women, mostly women, at college age who don't know necessarily why they're having sex, and usually to say something like, "Well, because he wants to," or, you know, "I think I'm supposed to have pleasure, but I don't know, and it's painful." And um, so, how do we how do we talk about pleasure? I mean, there's some people out there right now are listening. We're probably saying, my God, they're talking about pleasure. How can you talk about pleasure with sex? Dead silence in the room. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, right? <laughs> well, I mean, that's just it. You know, when, when Marie said we're going to talk about pleasure tonight, I said, okay. So what are we going to talk about? How to increase your pleasure? Or do we just say to the listeners, it's all right to have pleasure doing sex? Matter of fact, it's almost a requirement if you're not doing it for procreation. Would that not be fair to say? Definitely, yeah. I'd say so. Even Rob's not in his head in the booth back then. <laughs> no. I mean, the reason for sex, I mean, tell me, am I wrong? No, I think maybe communication could be part of it too, because maybe sometimes you are just having sex to have sex, and you aren't communicating with your partner, this isn't pleasurable for me, or I don't like this. So maybe communication can be part to But if they're having pleasure. sex just to have sex, then somebody must be having pleasure, or they're both kind of living in a fantasy world. I mean, we're just having sex to have sex. That's like, well, we're, I just, do wonder if we're the, just driving a car to drive the car. Or you just get in a routine, well, and this is how your sex is, even if it's not. But before it. there's that routine, there might be the first time that you have sex, and it's, it's not necessarily for pleasure or anything other than curiosity, mm -hmm. because you've never had sex before. Or and a lot of times people describe their first time so having people sex have as not being pleasurable at all. You're telling me that people have sex for curiosity? I'm saying you go to the time. zoo for curiosity. You don't. You don't have sex for curiosity, do you? I think that's disingenuous. <laughs> I, think you, no. I think people have sex for the first time because they're curious. Really? Okay. If if you've had sex for the first time because you're curious, please call in. Four three two three eight nine three. So I mean, it might so, not be the only reason. I mean, they're. I'm sure they're anticipating pleasure. Well, I, I would hope they. Do are. you think they are? Who's hot? Who's yeah, but but I think but I think people have. I I think. People do describe it all the time that the first time they have sex is not pleasurable at all. Well, so, but but who talks to them about pleasure? I mean, Marie, when you said that topic tonight, I said, so how do we talk to people about pleasure? We can talk to about you know that women love oral sex more than like intercourse. We can say the normal stuff we always say. Or if you want to achieve an orgasm, women should be in in what position? Missionary. No, not missionary. <laughs> not missionary position. I mean, the, the the one from research that women say that it's the most pleasurable if you're going to have intercourse for anatomical reasons and achieve orgasm would be what? Rear entry position. 
not anal, but rear entry position. So we can talk about that, but, but how do we talk about uh, it's all right for you to have pleasure, Marie? <laughs> I think, um, yeah, first exploring yourself, and know, and that's another thing about being able to have permission. I think ah. permission is a big thing with pleasure and um, exploring that. Not only permission with your partner, but permission with, with yourself. yourself yeah. yeah, to be able to enjoy it, to say it's okay, take a step back, it, you know, what do you want out of this? Do you know, and I don't, see? Cause, well, because if, you, if you don't give yourself to be completely, give, if you don't give yourself permission to be completely comfortable in a situation, then it's very difficult to enjoy it. Right. So what do you say to the people who say sex isn't about pleasure, it's just a mechanical duty, it's a procreation duty? What do you say to them? Boring. <laughs> it's sad. Yes, yeah, I don't think that's gonna fly. Boring. Well, what do you say to them? Dead silence again, folks. Dead silence. Uh, it's about pleasure, right? So, uh, how do we talk to people about that? I know. Well, for in some of our programs, we talk about when it comes to pleasure, um, masturbation, knowing what you want, teaching yourself what you want, so you can teach a partner, can lead to pleasure. So we're, we're, we're saying, what, masturbation is okay? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a natural mm -hmm. I mean, thing? most females don't even have an orgasm until they kind of show themselves how to do it. It's like experimenting with yourself so you can tell your partner how to experiment on you. So a lot of times people uh, find out about pleasure through their own self-masturbation or self-exploration. Because how, how do you know what you like until you've tried it yourself? Uh, and I'm not, we're not endorsing masturbation as something you should do, but it is by 85 to 90 percent of college students do admit to having masturbated uh, or do it on a regular basis. So something must be going on out there. So, so you're saying that one of the ways to uh, talk about pleasure is say, how do you find out uh, what's comfortable with your body and how do you find out about pleasure? Mm. And is that something that you discussed with your parents? Um, <laughs> I, I can't say I have, but I know we've, we've been trying to talk to the students here, you know. I mean, I guess maybe not something you talk to with your parent, but more your partner, um, the ways, and you know, for each other. Well, so do you think most, most couples do talk about, uh, hey, let's just kind of review the last night's uh, encounter and see if it was pleasurable for you, or is it just a taboo subject? I don't think most couples would discuss no. masturbation either, because then it's like, well, why are you masturbating? If you're my partner, what yeah. am I doing wrong that you have to do that? Oh. I, think, I think couples are more often experiment with each other. Yeah. Um, they might, uh, as an individual, you might you might discover something for yourself, um, but not reveal how you discover that mm -hmm. from yourself, but you talk about it with your partner <laughs> when you're in the process of having sex with them. Well, you know, one of the things it you sounds put, very technical. One of the things, <laughs> Marie, one of the things you put on this uh, uh, the agenda here was saying knowing your body is so important when it comes to appreciating yourself. And Colleen, you were just talking about that. Uh, so, are we saying that's part of the first step to understanding pleasure and realizing you're you're entitled to receive pleasure mm -hmm. or give yourself pleasure is to uh, explore your own body? And I think being comfortable with your own body. Definitely. How yeah. do you do that, Emily? I mean, how, how do you tell somebody that? I mean, you know, it would have been easy just to come out here and tell you all the techniques to give pleasure to somebody, but if you're not talking about why it's important or how somebody can actually feel comfortable enough to receive pleasure, because sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, part of the reason for some women being non-orgasmic is they don't want to give themselves permission right. or let go or be or believe that they're entitled to have anything any pleasure or anything like that. So how do you feel, how do you become comfortable with your body enough to either give yourself pleasure or tell somebody else, hey, I'm ready? Well, I, I remember my freshman or sophomore year talking to one of my very good friends and she's like, I, you know, I've been dating this guy for like three months, you know, four months. We've been sexually active for, you know, three months or so. And she's like, I just can't have an orgasm and I don't know what's wrong. And then I, you know, I asked her two months later, and she goes, yeah, I just, I just wasn't comfortable with myself or did, just didn't let myself relax or let go. Uh, and I think, that, I think we've heard that story over and over again. And uh, I think part of it was her getting familiar with her partner, even. Yeah, probably. Well, so, so if somebody is not comfortable enough to receive pleasure, I mean, how do you work with that? What do you tell them? I don't know. Tell, I, I feel... 
um, reassure them that they're not the only one that feels that way and that um, it's, it is important to know more about yourself before you um, kind of help someone else with pleasure or a relationship in general. Um, just making sure that you're ready, that you're mm -hmm. you've taken steps to be ready with yourself before, yeah, before you... Or we've also talked about the issue of this on our show where it's, it's the idea of having sex versus having sex with the goal of having an orgasm. orgasm. And yeah. so maybe, in my friend's instance, she was like, oh, maybe now I can have an orgasm for the first time in my life. Um, and and then she just had that pressure in her head, like, how does this yeah, work? When is this right. going to happen? And then she never let herself right. let go. If you're, if you're that focused uh, on the end and, and not enjoying the journey, then Tr it's maybe harder to... <laughs> Trust in a veteran host of impacts exposure to come up with that, because that's <laughs> exactly right, because we're talking about pleasure, and I think folks out there are listening, and even some of us are saying, well, we're talking about orgasms. Well, no. You know, I once learned a long time ago from a, a friend of mine who was paralyzed in the waist down who said that if you can feel any part on your body, you can receive pleasure. If you can move any part on your body, you can give pleasure. It's not about orgasm. It's not about climax. It's not about all these things we normally attribute to sex. It's about feeling good, feeling good with another person. That's why you have 41 different sexual acts that people talk about doing because there are a lot of things you can do to give pleasure and receive pleasure. You do have to be, you do have to be accepting of it and you have to feel that you're worthy of it. Mm -hmm. Some people don't feel they're worthy of it for a lot of different reasons, but pleasure is so across the scale. But and we have we have another caller for the evening. Hello, you're on Impact's Exposure. Hello, good evening. Good Hello. evening. So I'm listening to you as I'm dropping after I drop my daughter off. <laughs> Was she in the car listening? <laughs> no, uh, actually, it, she's about two hours away from me. Okay. Oh, okay. So, um, first of all, about the pleasure. The one thing that strikes me the most is the relationship I'm in now long-term committed relationship, a lot of affection, a lot of simple touching as you pass the person, gives me much pleasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The sexual act itself is wonderful, but it's the closeness and the pleasure of being with that person that makes it more so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that's my personal experiences with it. I've never been a cuddler before. I'm a cuddler now. <laughs> um, it's it's a it's a warm, wonderful feeling that carries you throughout your day, throughout my day. It carries me throughout my day, and I really just enjoy being with this person. He's he's wonderful to me. He's wonderful with my children. It's just a fabulous feeling. So you you've you've worked on developing developing an intimacy with this individual where there's that close connection where you've shared emotions and you shared experiences and so you've decided that most anything that you can do with this person from him touching you while you're driving a car to actually involved in in sexual intercourse can be pleasurable. Correct. Okay, and I say I think that's what most people are missing uh, in long-term relationships. And, and actually, the MSU study shows that most MSU students are in committed relationships. We we have this perception that most students are jumping from bedroom to bedroom and are trying to find their intimacy through sex, and it's not true. Of the seventy-five percent of students who are sexually active on this campus, seventy-five percent of them are in committed relationships. Only have one partner. So I think I think you you, you uh, introduce a really good concept when you talk about pleasure sometimes is feeling comfortable enough to say that anything I do with this person that's touching or communication uh, is going to be pleasurable. That's exactly it. Um, also touching on the children aspect, mm -hmm. I have two grown children who happen to be virgins by their own choice. Uh, when they were young enough to know the difference, they were taught the correct anatom anatomical terms for their bodies, and then as they had questions as they grew older, I just stayed open. I never was shocked about anything they said or asked me, or that they did. Um, my son is the eldest, and when he entered puberty, he just came to me one day and said, Mom, I'm going to start doing my own laundry. I said, you want to <laughs> talk about that? 
And he said, no, not really. I said, well, do you want to talk to your uncle about that? Yeah, I'll get around to it. Hmm. We, the, the, the men on the panel here just laugh because we know what you're talking about. It took mm-hmm. me a while. I finally uh, get it. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah. let me ask you do, you, do you think that you were an askable parent? I believe so. Okay. I believe that sexual relations are very natural things. I know that that's looked upon as a taboo mm-hmm. by a lot of people, but myself, I believe that it's a very natural, loving expression of yourself, and I've tried to teach that to my children, and I also told them when they were ready, they would know. It wouldn't just be a physical thing. It would, be, it would encompass more than that. Well, let me ask you. You said you had a daughter, right? Yes. How old is she? She will be 18 at the end of the month. So if she asked you, Mom, how can I have more pleasure during sex? How would you answer that? Well, I would ask her how deep she wanted me to get into it. <laughs> okay. Good answer. Well, you know, she's, she came to me and she told me when she was a freshman in high school that she had decided to wait until after high school before she had any type of sexual relations. Okay. I said, well, I'm very proud of you for that decision, but why did you make that decision? Hmm. She said, because my friends who are having sex are too caught up in all the crap that goes on, <laughs> and they're not concentrating on what's important right now. Okay. And so, I felt that was a very mature answer. I was like, well, good for you. That's very mature. That is very mature. Sounds like and, she made uh, a con- conscious decision based on her experiences, and I would say probably very good parenting, too. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you're kind of setting the model there. She, Because she had the ability to... to to have a parent that she could come talk to about it. Mm-hmm. And she was already familiar with some of this stuff when she started hearing about it from her friends. It wasn't something where she was kind of grasping at straws. It was something where she knew she had a support group back home that she could right. she could bounce these things off of. And I think that's huge. But you know, your daughter's actually part of the norm. Uh, with the study that we were talking about earlier, your daughter's actually part of the norm because the new study shows that most adolescents, teens, make very responsible decisions when it comes to their sexuality and expression of it. But we still kind of think that they can't handle it. So I, apl- I applaud you for being an askable parent. I applaud you for, for kind of setting a tone for our listeners that, you know, it is all about uh, ask or answering the questions when they ask, but also being open to a discussion. Thank you. No problem. And you can stay on the line and learn how you can get your prize pack from Mullen Health Center. Thanks so much. Thank you. And if you want to call in, the phone number is 432-3893. So, I mean, we're talking about pleasure. I sort of got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but, you know, she brings up the point that pleasure is about, you know, having that intimacy. Intimacy. You know, and, and I always try to be really you know, strict about the definition of intimacy and sex because some people think sex is intimacy and intimacy is sex and it's really not. Mm-hmm. You can have a sexual intimacy but intimacy is what she's really talking about is that kind of warmness, that closeness, that getting to know somebody where, you know, even if they just touch you on the, the hand, it tingles. I mean, I know it's something like a Hallmark card here, but <laughs> it does. You know, it, it's pleasurable. And one of the things that, you know, Marie, when you said let's talk about pleasure is, is first of all, that permission, and then, mm-hmm. and then allowing yourself to receive pleasure, but knowing that, you know, uh, anywhere on your body can receive pleasure. Mm-hmm. We tend to think that only the genitals is the only area that's going to receive pleasure. But uh, I've learned from working in the disability community for a long time that there are folks who cannot receive any type of genital pleasure that probably have better orgasms than some people I know who are fully equipped and ready to go genitally, but just don't know how to. Uh, expand the horizons. That's amazing. It is good. And it's, you know, it's, it's about, you know, one of the things we do when you talk about pleasure, one of the things we do is we give exercise to people who will come together as a couple, or even those who don't. We, we do an exercise called Sensate Focus. And, and I say to our, our listeners out there, try this sometime. If you're with a significant other or somebody, just do this. No genital, foc- no genital touching at all, but touch everywhere on that person's body and have them react to it. Every place you touch in their body, they have to react and tell you, is it pleasurable or not? Is the touch uh, um, uh, strong enough? Is it too light? Are you doing it the right way? Should you be moving side to side instead of circling? Do that everywhere on your body, and you'd be amazed what you'll find out about your body. If you're you're allowed to take the focus off the genitals, because we do that a lot, because sometimes people are just focused on the genitals. It's called sensate focus. And then you turn it around, and your partner does it to you. And you cannot even come close to the genitals. You have to touch every other part of the body. And then you have to report back to the person. You'll be amazed what you'll find out what is actually pleasurable. 
Well, I think that's I, I think that's a great experiment to do. I mean, if you're in a relationship with someone and you and you want to experience more pleasure, that's a great exercise I think to try. Well, even as long as you've, I mean, you've talked about it with them, um, you'll probably discover all kinds of new things about your partner, and there'll be things that you can add into your repertoire as, as you move along. Well, and even for single people, I, you know, I wonder why single people like uh, massages so much. Because a massage, you're actually knowing that there's not going to be any genital focus on it, and you're just sitting there waiting for, you know, that type of touch that you know that you've allowed yourself to be pleasurable. But most couples don't do that because a lot of couples are focused on, you know, the intercourse and the genitally focused stuff. So pleasure is, I mean, there's a lot that can happen. Mm-hmm. A lot that can happen. So I'm looking at this list. I know we only have a few more minutes left here. Uh, I think, you know, when we talk about uh, the things that are really turn-ons and turn-offs for pleasure, I know Marie said, what's the list? What's the list here? You know, and, and having taught uh, at MSU for now 20-some years and at LCC for 17, I always ask students, tell me what your top enhancers and detractors are to, to pleasure during sex. And what do you think number one enhancer always is? Adequate foreplay. <laughs> You're reading your notes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier right. with the 30% of women uh, experiencing, you know, pain during pain. sex. And um, Emily, I know you asked about um, whether it was necessary for guys to have lubrication or whatever. Um, or even foreplay. Or even foreplay. Right. Uh, you know, and, and guys do have some, some lubrication that happens. But, um, but do you think most guys are interested in foreplay, Andrew? Seriously. Uh, I'm not going to make that kind of judgment. I mean, I think I can only speak for myself. I like foreplay, <laughs> but um, but do you think most men are? I mean, come on, we're I mean, we've been on this earth for a while. We kind of know something about men. Do we think most men are interested in foreplay? I think you want me to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Stereotypically, no. I yeah. feel like. But I think if you're someone who really cared about their partner, they would be interested for that person. Right, especially right. if you know, only if they know. that, that 30% true. of the time there could be pain involved because they're not ready. If I told you that in, in a survey that was done not too long ago that the average American woman, whether they're in, in uh, same-sex relationship or heterosexual, uh, wanted 30 minutes of foreplay before they proceeded to either intercourse or, or orgasm, but the average couple in the U.S. only spends 15 minutes on it. Who do you think is getting the short end on that one? Most men will report that they, they get uh, uh, satisfaction and enjoyment out of their intercourse, and most women would say they don't out of regular intercourse, and a lot of times it has to do with the fact that they don't understand that there's different needs, and that, you know, n- not that you need 30 minutes for foreplay, but if the average is 30 minutes and the average couple only spends 15 minutes, then we got a problem of communication and, and desires here. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Definitely. So when you talk about foreplay, so the the number one enhancer was uh, I'm running out of time here was adequate foreplay. What was the number one detractor? Odors. Odors. What type of odors? Like? Well, I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> bad ones. Yeah, bad ones. <laughs> well, if we went down this list, if you looked at the number two enhancer was it's good good smell, and the number two detractor right. is not enough mm-hmm. foreplay. The two senses that are most important when, you, when you've decided that pleasure is partly what you're going to do when you're involving yourself in sex, the two senses that are most important are touch, touch and, and smell. smell. And if you think about it, it's, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, usually when you talk to people about uh, their memories from childhood, the most vivid memories they have have to do with smell. smell. Yep. Yeah. And so, so a lot of folks don't understand how smell comes into it, that smell can be an, an incredible enhancer, but it can be an incredible detractor. It's a very too. powerful <laughs> sense. Very powerful. Very tied to memory. And, and, and to pleasure. And mm-hmm. so sometimes when we're just interested in giving pleasure physically, I mean through the skin and touching, we forget that uh, pay attention to the way you smell and, and talk to your partner about it because smell and touch are most important when you're talking about pleasure. Take a shower. <laughs> Have good pheromones. Yeah, good pheromones. Uh, so, with Why that... Why do you think Axe spent so much money on their, on their uh, yeah. ad campaigns, right? <laughs> we do want to uh, make note of a couple of events that are coming up uh, here. And Emily, you talked about one of them. You want to... The October 11th? Oh, yeah. October 11th um, is National Coming Out Day. And I think that MSU is probably going to have some events going on on October 11th. 
Uh, once again, the uh, keep your eyes peeled. Mm -hmm. uh, the the vigil to end homophobia and transphobia uh, phobia is happening uh, tomorrow, actually, uh, October sixth, from eight a.m. to nine p.m. at the Rock here. And mm -hmm. I know there'll be several uh, hundred students there, and probably administrators, faculty, and, and community members who are joining together to try to uh, at least support uh, and do a vigil to try to end homophobia and transphobia. And uh, what's coming up at Olin Health Center? Uh, we are working on World AIDS Day events as well. World AIDS Day is December 1st, so keep your eyes open and ears listening for events on those. Also, our next Sex Poser show is Tuesday, November 2nd. It's always so. the first Tuesday of the month. Right. Also, there's the Olin Open House, which is October 20th at 5.30 p.m. Sweet. At Olin Health Center. And we'll, we still have the same services available. If you want to come in and talk to us about uh, uh, sexual health promotion, we're number two in the nation. We'll, we'll be there for you. We're, we're striving to be number one. Uh, and we'll help you. Uh, uh, if you want to talk, come in and talk about pleasure, we'll be there for you, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure thing. Well, thank you, crew, from Olin Health Center for coming in for another edition of Impact Sexposure, which airs the first Tuesday of every month. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Go stay. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.